Hey, welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. I am Jake Wiskirchen. I'm your host as always. And the show, as always, is sponsored by Zephyr Wellness, which is a company I co-own here in Reno, Nevada. Check out zephyrwellness.org if you want to find out more. We are doing more. And just recently, we are uh, proudly announcing that we're in network with Health Plan of Nevada Medicaid, which is a Medicaid stripe that covers most of the children in Washoe County and Clark County. We happen to reside in Washoe County, so this would be relevant to those people who reside in Washoe County. But we're pretty proud of that because it's uh, it's been a long struggle to get in network. And so now we can proudly say that we take Health Plan of Nevada Medicaid at Zephyr Wellness. Today's episode of Noggin Notes discusses school counseling and how important school counselors are. I think uh, historically they've been chalked up as some sort of ancillary figure to most of K-12 education, and that's simply not the case. So today uh, in, in the podcast I interview Katie Baskerville and Dana Livermont of the Rapid City Area Schools. Excuse me, I choked on my, my own spit there. Uh, and we, we dive into what a school counselor is, how it's evolved over the years and uh, various names that you can call a school counselor. Don't call them guidance counselors, by the way. That's an antiquated name that we don't no longer use. So um, I hope you enjoy this. I think one thing that surfaced at the end after I uh, stopped the podcast and we continued talking on the phone for several more minutes was that I didn't realize how many people realize this is not just a podcast, but an app. Noggin Notes is an app that you can download on your phone and or your tablet. And what you can do is track your emotions and your thoughts with it. And I, I found that many school counselors in my area have found this very useful for their, their students insofar that the students, at least of the, the, the age of, say, um, you know, 12-ish on up, uh, can can download the app and track their thoughts and their feelings in a timeline that they can then present to their school counselors or their mental health counselors that creates a, a digital journal of sorts. It's housed right there on the phone. Nobody can see it. Nobody can log into it except for you. And uh, it, it, it's, it, it really creates a lot of very cool insight for professionals who are trying to help the, the children who are doing this. So if you're a child, if you're a student who is listening to this podcast and you want to gain some insight into your own behavioral functioning, download the Naga Notes app and start tracking what you feel, when you feel it, and why you feel it. And you'll unfold over time this, this journal that uh, basically gives you your own personal insight. So if you start to see trends emerging about why you're angry at a certain time of the day, uh, you may correlate that to being hungry because you're in between meals, or you, you might be scared at a certain time of the day every day because it's heading into a break of some sort where you're going to interact with the, the kid who bullies you. So it, it might it might be illuminating to, to learn your own emotional functioning and uh, string it out over the course of a timeline. So we invite you to download the Naga Notes app if you don't have that. Um, it it didn't, didn't really occur to me that people didn't realize we have an app and a podcast. It's not just the podcast standing alone. So that all being said, we um, invite you to sit back and enjoy the upcoming very long-form dialogue with Katie Baskerville and Dana Livermont of Rapid City, South Dakota, as we talk about the benefits of being a school counselor, as well as the benefits of having a school counselor for your students. Enjoy. 
Well, we're uh, back on the Noggin Notes podcast. You already heard the introduction, and you'll know that we're going to be talking with uh, Katie Baskerville and Dana Livermont. Um, I pronounced that right, right? It's not Livermont, is it? No, you got it perfectly. It's pretty phonetic, Livermont. Livermont. Uh, and and uh, Katie, uh, you guys are both uh, school counselors at Canyon Lake Elementary in Rapid City, South Dakota. Yep, I'm at Canyon Lake uh, Elementary in South Dakota, and Dana is kind of my supervisor. She's our lead school counselor for the district. Ah. She's got a fancy title, too, I guess. Yeah, so I'm the College and Career Readiness uh, lead school counselor for Rapid City Area Schools. Um, and so my role, which uh, has been newly created for this district, um, is really to support the school counselors in the work they do Um we, I do some marketing with the public and, and talking about our role, um, and then I also provide professional development for our school counselors and just kind of work as a sounding board to um, help them with uh, any sort of ethical dilemmas or, or if they need additional supports in their schools. So Right on. <laughs> right on. Jack of all trades. Sometimes. <laughs> and do you, do you, Dana, do you actually work with students also, or is your role mostly admin? So, yeah, that's been a, a real change for me in moving into this role is that I don't generally work directly with students unless I'm called in um, as a support role in a building, in, in which case then I may um, visit with students and, and work as an additional counselor in the building. But um, generally, I'm working with other adults, Okay. which is fun, but it's kind of a bummer a lot of the times, too, because working with students is just awesome. No, I hear you. I've, uh, anybody who's, you know, familiar with what I do, uh, they know that I'm a therapist first, but, um, uh, lately in the last year or so I've slipped into this admin slash policy role and it's, um, and it's kind of taken a toll on my clinical abilities, to be honest. I'm, I'm actually really excited as, as you both know, I, I work in schools also and, um, uh, and I, I just purposely in the last month put myself out into a, a rural community here in Nevada uh, called Lovelock. Uh, and I'm working with uh, school age children again, uh, because I just missed it. It was just, I, 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 I think I dehydrated a little bit of just doing, you know, policy stuff. So it's nice to get, get back in the water a little bit and, um, and refresh and it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable. So I, I, I hope that you get a, a nice balance. And Katie, um, describe what, what your usual role is. I think when people think school counselor, they think um, sometimes they think mental health counselor, but that's not really what you do. And and we'll talk a little bit about uh, the evolving role of the school counselor here in a minute, but just briefly describe what your, your day looks like on a, on a random day. Yeah, so my days changed a lot this year, actually. Last year, I was half-time elementary and half-time high school, um, and I was the only one in the district. That's That was pretty rare. Um, but so I was running back and forth, and, I, you know, as anybody knows, high school needs and elementary needs are very, very different. So my days, uh, just depending on what day of the week it was, it, it really depended. This year, uh, luckily, Dana, our advocate for counselors, <laughs> has, uh, has worked really hard, and we've got was it one additional full-time counseling position, but it was split at the, the schools of need. So my school actually gained a half and turned my position into a whole. So now I'm strictly full-time at my elementary school at Canyon Lake Elementary in Rapid City. And so our school is a Title I school. So we have, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think around 440 kids or so. So it's um, we have preschool, but I primarily work with K through five, um, and my role as a school counselor, and again, it might vary on the day, but typically it's 
The main role is providing instructional support to all students. Um, the big part of our job, and what I really like about being a school counselor, was that I get to reach the whole school. Um, I have a background in behavioral and chemical dependency counseling as well. And uh, it, at the residential treatment center that I previously worked at, we worked with eight, or I worked with about 18 kids at a time. Um, you know, and by the time they come to residential, they're, they're pretty high needs. They've gotten into a lot of trouble. I love school counseling because I get to talk to all of the kids. You know, I get 430 some kids at Canyon Lake and uh, I'm hoping to provide them all with great resources and tools as they start growing up. And, and some kids might need me more. Um, some kids might need me less and they just see me in their classrooms once or twice a month and that's it. So it, it really varies. Um, I do some small groups. Uh, we're, we're just starting the new school year. We, we Students just came back this week, so I haven't started my small groups yet. But that's another part that I really love is pulling kids aside um, in school for just some additional support. But primarily their focus should be on school. So, again, that's a big difference between the mental health side and the school side is ultimately we want the kids to be in class but we need to address those needs as they come up as well. This is starting to sound like a, an advertisement for school counselors and uh, maybe a public service <laughs> announcement. Uh, but uh, it sounds like a really wonderful gig. Um, I've, I've, in a previous life, I was an educator and I worked in schools uh, quite a bit. And I really appreciate the way that you laid that out. Uh, the diversity uh, with the students, I think, is very attractive. You mentioned residential treatment where most, most, I mean, all kids who make it to residential treatment are very high acuity and high needs, and um, it's very intense. And so with, with a school setting, you're going to get some of those who are very intense and they have high needs and there's a lot of stress in their lives and whatnot. But then you also get the, the high achievers and the middle achievers and kids who just need a nudge, and then there's kids who are, you know, have different presentations and personalities. And so I think that's very cool that, that you uh, mentioned that because I think it's very attractive as a profession for somebody who wants to get into it. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to oh, go ahead. counseling and that's what I love about it. It's so many different things, but ultimately, yeah, it's just awesome working with kids and helping them achieve, you know, our big thing is uh, their academic, personal and post-graduation goals and kind of focusing on those. So it's, it's awesome watching the kids grow and helping them kind of learn about themselves and developing their interests and, and watching who they become and kind of helping a little, I'm hoping helping a, a little bit through along the way. Hopefully, hopefully, yes. Um, I just tilted the mic a little bit more toward you on the phone and away from me because I was noticing I was getting some flare on my um, on my little meter here. So, uh, okay. sneak, we'll look behind the curtain for the audience. Uh, yeah. What's going on? But uh, I want to get back to you mentioned Title One, and we have some people who are familiar with what that the phraseology is, and uh, we try to clear up acronyms and we try not to use um, you know professional lingo. And if we if we do, we want to define it for people because we also have an international audience and they may not be familiar with. American lingo. So explain what a Title I school is and then also describe briefly the, the demographics of Rapid City. Well, so um, kind of the short version of that is there's, there's a series of um, federal statutes um, that kind of guide the way um, we support students and they're under different titles. Um, so you have Title I, Title VI, Title IX. Um, but Title I is specific to supports um, for schools that service a, a large um, portion of 
um, low-income students, and th- that's usually determined by um, the amount of students who are on free and reduced lunch. So um, in Rapid City, we actually have a large number um, of elementary schools. In fact, um, probably more than half of them are, are considered Title I schools, um, and because of that, they get a little... Um, well, I shouldn't say a little, they get a lot of additional funding and supports as well as some additional accountability to really um, strive to meet the needs um, of some of our low-income students and close the gap on their learning. Rapid City is not small. It's about 75,000 people, if I remember correctly. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so it's 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 a fairly, you know, I mean, it's a mid-sized community. I mean, to, by comparison, you got um, uh, this, the cities of Reno and Sparks, where I live, r- roughly about 400,000, which would be, you know, fairly large-ish, but yep. it's still not a not a major city like Chicago or New York or San Francisco. But um, Rapid City, you know, I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to run out of things to do. I mean, you, you guys got, you know, big stores and, and restaurants and that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a fairly diverse town. Yeah, and tourism is real big. I mean, we've got, I think, just shy of, I was looking at our stats and our data, and I think we've got just shy of about 14,000 students in our school district alone. And then, I mean, we have other smaller school districts surrounding us as well. We have a um, an Air Force base uh, in Box Elder that has a, a fairly large school district. Um, so ours alone is about 14,000 students and about 1,800 staff, teachers, support I guess adults in the schools, basically about 1,800. So yeah, it's not it's it's not a small uh, small community by any means, but um, we are the second largest in South Dakota. I mean, thinking about South Dakota, we have less than a million people in the entire population of South Dakota. Mm-hmm. So it is very large for us. But in, yeah, like you said, in the terms of you're looking at inner city schools or Chicago or even Minneapolis. I mean, the, yeah, those would be significantly larger. It's a relatively smaller system, but still a big player for South Dakota. Correct. Yep. Correct. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about um, the mental health angle here. Um, Katie, you were talking about how your uh, previous previously in your career, you spent some time in residential treatment. And for those who may not be familiar with the way that uh, intervention levels work in, in mental health care, the, we we typically want to try well in all healthcare I should say we we want to try the the lowest level of intrusiveness first and then if that doesn't work we level up to something else so for example if you break your arm we just don't go right to surgery we try to you know set the bone you know <laughs> see if that works and then if that yeah. doesn't work we go to something else so in mental health care it's very similar so the the lowest level of intrusiveness would be what we call you know outpatient therapy and then you you can level up to um, maybe groups uh, on top of that out outpatient, you know, just talk therapy once a week or whatever. And then you can level up to something called intensive outpatient, which is groups and individual sessions and skills groups and whatnot. And then there's uh, something called uh, day treatment where you go basically all day and uh, there's there's a school component incorporated. And then there above that, there would be partial hospitalization where you're in a, in a hospital setting, but it looks like day treatment. Uh, you spend the whole day there, but you go home at night. And then uh, there's residential, where you're actually living on the campus of where you're getting treated. And then for really, really severe, severely acute individuals, both uh, children and adults, there's locked residential, which almost feels a little bit like a prison, but uh, it isn't. And that's that's all predicated on safety. So um, you, you worked in residential treatment, which basically means the kids live on site and your history is in chemical dependency. So that, that would be also known as a substance abuse treatment. Um, but before we even get to talk therapy, 
there's a, there's a lower level still, which is basically just consultation. You know, that's what that's what a lot of people do with their their friends and their colleagues and their families, and and that's that's certainly some sort of treatment. We don't necessarily bill insurance for it or charge for it, but um, in a school setting, as I understand it, and I have never been a school counselor, but school counselors can certainly have good, healthy conversations with students that don't amount to, you know, clinical level of care. And, and I know that you guys do that all the time with your kids. You know, some, some kids getting bullied or teased and you, you pull them aside and you sit down and you, you talk with them about how to be resilient yep, on that kind of thing. Right. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is I, I think that sometimes there's a misperception that, um, school counselors are the same, um, as like a counselor you might see at um, like a local mental health provider, but they're just placed at a school. Um, and it's actually quite different. The training's different and um, how our days look is quite different and our code of ethics is different. Um, so within our schools, we're really um, kind of framing ourselves as educators, but educators in a different way than maybe a classroom teacher. So what we're really trying to do is um, – give students skills to respond to situations or to cope with situations or to have some resiliency. So, um, so very rarely would we, um, do really intensive sorts of therapy with, um, students. In fact, it's kind of a violation of our code of ethics to even dive into that realm. Really what we want to do is, um, provide lessons to give all students skills and then pull, um, small groups of students for more intensive supports and really hone in on those skills. Um, and, and when we do pull small groups, it's, it's intended to be, um, brief and solution focused. So we're always kind of have a goal in mind and it's not something where we, we really just kind of meet and hang out and, and let the, the conversation wander. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately, like we said, we want to get them back to class at, you know, in the school setting. So if we identify students that maybe need a few, more resources or higher resources, then we usually talk to parents or we can make referrals. We've got a huge list of community um, resources out there for the mental health side. Um, so then we'll help parents, uh, you know, we, we won't refer specifically to one treatment or form of treatment, but we'll kind of push them and say, you know, maybe this, the student is really struggling more and would benefit from seeing a, an outside counselor maybe after school. I love, love, love that you delineated that way, um, education versus treatment. And I think that in our field, uh, my, my field specifically with uh, outpatient counseling, there's, there's a lot of hybridization going on. Certainly we do teach some skills. Um, but what you're essentially saying is you're, you're equipping these students with knowledge um, and, and application. You're not taking a deep dive into the 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 behind the scenes problems you know like where it came from the origins the the family histories all that stuff that could be almost like I, I use the metaphor of unzipping someone and, because in a school setting you don't have the time to work yeah. toward zipping them back up before you send them back to class and so what you do is is you teach and it keeps them almost in their cognitive realm and people who've listened to this podcast will know that the difference between emotion and logic is one that says, you know, which part of the brain are you triggering? And if you stay in logic, you tend to have a little bit more surface level conversation. It's not so risky and it doesn't, it doesn't, um, expose the, the individual to, you know, more, uh, more vulnerability. And it sounds like 
what you guys do in that setting is is precisely that you just you're teaching you're educating you're hitting the frontal lobe um whereas in in my realm we're going more into the limbic we're, we're pushing people into emotion to to help them sit in it and tolerate it and and so forth so i really appreciate that you line that out what are some other resources though that school counselors would refer in, out into the community for other than mental health treatment um like okay say for example we have a a young student um who maybe is explosive in class and they're kind of sent to us to say, how can we help Johnny um, remain calm and regulated in class? And we may give Johnny some strategies um, and recognizing I'm about to um, have kind of an explosion here to recognize that and respond and give him some strategies like, okay, maybe I could take a break to the bathroom to calm down or, or count to 10 or whatever strategy works for Johnny. But we may also note that um, Johnny appears to have had some previous trauma or adverse childhood experiences in his life that probably need a little bit more in packaging, just as you're talking about. And so we would, in that case, refer, make a referral out for that sort of um, counseling and work in consultation maybe with that agency counselor. But within the school, we're really just working on the strategies to stay regulated. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I love that anecdote. That, um, poor Johnny always gets picked on a lot. Johnny and, and Billy, I think, are the, are the ones. That... <laughs> yeah, and Su- Susie is, uh, is the girl. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, what other, besides, uh, besides counseling, what, what other stuff do you see present that maybe goes above and beyond what your uh, scope of duty is in school? I know that some people you know, refer out for, say, occupational therapy, speech therapy, that those kinds of things. But do you, do you see anything? I mean, do you, do you ever refer out for, say, medical or, or do you encourage kids to get involved in clubs or sports or activities, that kind of thing that would also enhance their, their education um, out, out, you know, that, that they could do outside the classroom? Yeah, so sometimes I – and we ha- – at least I can speak for my school. I can't speak for all schools. Um, but at our school, we have some really awesome support. So we actually have occupational therapy um, part-time. Uh, she goes to a couple different schools. But we have an OT, occupational therapist, in our school. Um, we have a behavior strategist who – I mean, we aligns a lot with what the counselors do, but is strictly looking at maybe the behavior side in the classroom. And we also have an intervention strategist. Um, So we have a really awesome team of people that can provide different supports, uh, depending on, like I said, if it's uh, maybe the psychosocial side on the counseling end or the occupational therapist side um, or the behavior strategist. So we have a lot of great resources. um, So then we can meet as a team and discuss other referrals outside. So, you know, if it's in the occupational therapy realm, you know, we have that in the school, but we have it in the community as well. So, or sometimes if we find kids that maybe the kids and the families need, um, you know, food or shelter or different kinds of resources, we have also those connections that we can um, hook families up with. So like our McKinney Vento, which I believe is national. McKinney Vento is also um, kind of a federal. um, Can you define, can you define that or are you defining it now and I'm interrupting you? Um, Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) 
McKinney-Vento is an act. It came out of a legislature, I believe, but um, all school districts are required to have a McKinney-Vento liaison, um, and that is a person who coordinates um, and provides services for um, students who are experiencing homelessness. So, um, and, and there's a federal guideline for how we define um, homelessness, but it could be, um, you know, living in a car or in a hotel or a motel, but it could also be that, you know, um, resources are tight and a family is doubled up with another um, family member. So, you know, you're, you're living with your aunt and uncle and cousins or something like that. And it could be temporary, but during that time, you technically qualify um, for a kind of a variety of services to help support the family. Um, some of those things could be like um, continuing to be enrolled in your school of origin. So, say you were enrolled at Canyon Lake Elementary with Katie, you're experiencing homelessness and you're living in a different part of Rapid City, um, the law requires us to accommodate the student to still be enrolled and, and continue their education at their school of origin. So, I mean, beyond that, there's a variety of services that a, a student and families can qualify for um, if they're experiencing homelessness, and that's all under the McKinney-Vento Act. I like that you say experiencing homelessness as opposed to homeless children, because um, in something that we try to uh, point out as frequently as possible is the use of language and not labeling people as though whatever they're dealing with is permanent. So when we say, you know, uh, we diagnose somebody, for instance, people will walk around and go, I am bipolar or I am ADHD or something like that. It's like, no, you're, you're struggling with it. And the idea is that eventually you won't be at some point. You will overcome this. And so, you know, if we say homeless people, it sounds like they're per- permanently homeless and they will never do anything else. So if you say experiencing homelessness, it gives the idea of, of hope that uh, at, at some point down the road, they will not be experiencing homelessness because they will have a home. So I really appreciate that you, you use that. And it's something that I encourage our audience to be mindful of when they, when they use language um, to add a qualifier and they're like experiencing or struggling with or dealing with, uh, because it, it gives a, a temporary notion and that is very encouraging because if we label people as though something is is permanent it's very defeating and uh, it doesn't give a lot of uh, spirit and of hope to, to to the idea that they can change so thanks for thanks for using that language it's very cool um i wanted to uh, mckinney vento by the way I, I looked it up it is a federal law it was passed in 1987 uh through congress um and in the Washoe County area where I live, uh, the, the, the term you'd, you'd hear used is children in transition. So, um, and that's, that would be, that would hit all those criteria you just listed off there. I want to talk a little bit about the term guidance counselor and uh, how we're, we're getting away from that. And it's, it's not, oh, go ahead. Hmm? what's that? I said boo. Hiss. Yeah. Yeah. Boo. Hiss. We um, don't like the term guidance. Right. Counselor. And it's but not that it's I not that you don't guide, right? That's a that's a good talking point. Why that, don't we like the term guidance counselor? That's a great segue for us here. So why so, don't why don't you guide anymore? Come on, these these children need guidance. <laughs> children do need guidance, um, but the the word guidance counselor has a lot of um, kind of packaging that it carries with us, and and it kind of arose, um, you know, maybe fifty years ago when really the guidance counselor was someone you went to to help you find a vocation and so it was somebody who was really guiding you towards um, a job. The role of the school counselor has um, shifted and morphed and grown so much that we do so much more than just focus on 
placing people into jobs, that the term is a little bit antiquated. And we really kind of want to dismiss um, the idea of the school counselor that goes along with that word. And so, like, when I was in high school, I had a guidance counselor, and I don't know if you did too. Um, but if you think back to your experience with your counselor, um, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, maybe even 15, and this isn't to, to um, be diminishing to school counselors at that time because the role has changed but at that time when I was in high school the school counselor was someone that you kind of self-selected you decided you wanted to go see and then you sought that person out and they may only service like you know 10% of the population and it was those kids who needed the extra guidance right Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. And we really want to change the idea that the counselor is someone who's kind of sitting in the back office of a school just waiting for customers to come to them. Our school counselors are really right um, out and visible. They're servicing all students. Um, They're a key member of leadership teams within buildings. Um, And really most of the work that we do is um, really for all students. Um, So... We spend about 80% of our time in classrooms or doing school-wide supports and uh, maybe 20% of our time pulling kids into our offices and doing um, small groups and individual counseling. So so the way that we look at a school counselor and how they use their time is really shifted from the days of the guidance counselor. Really, we like to re- be referred to as professional school counselors now. I like that. I, I appreciate that. That helps me actually understand a lot more, too. And for as much work as I do in schools, I think that laying it out like that really uh, helps paint the picture for the audience because um, I know what you're talking about. But uh, a lot of people, I think, especially parents, they go, well, what, what does a school counselor do? You know, they, in middle and high school, maybe they help you set your schedule and then uh, run some anti-bullying stuff in the classroom and then they twiddle their thumbs all day. But that's not at all true. You're, you're very active. <laughs> tired at the end of the day yeah, yeah. and you know when we as, I mean we've have different kinds of curriculum but in our district specifically like we have a school counseling curriculum the school counselors all will start implementing the, the lesson plan so that they kind of match and align across the board each month so that if we have students that transfer they'll kind of know what's going on and using common language throughout the school oh that's great but yeah, but then ultimately the school counselor can put their own kind of flair on it because obviously we're all creative individuals too and like like to put our own spin on things. Um, so again, it kind of goes back to being counselors and being teachers all at the same time um, and, and teaching students. And like I said, we, we just established um, a new curriculum starting this year. So we're just starting to implement it now and kind of in the early phases. So we're intrigued to see over the next couple months how that goes and, and you know, collecting our data and kind of interpreting how effective it is, with which I think we're all super optimistic that it's going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to see how that kind of unfolds and, and having those lessons and then having the kids using, a, like you had mentioned, how important common language is so that all the kids are kind of on the same page as well. Speaking of data collection, there's a lot of controversy these days about how schools are not educating anymore. They're just testing, right? And so there's a there's a big push to reincorporate, you know, teaching and not and get away from the tests. But I don't know how that battle's necessarily playing out because it's not in my wheelhouse these days. But talk to me a little bit about what your experience is there in, in Rapid City with um, school counselors doing the testing and how much of a burden that is on your on your schedule or or if it is. Well, a, a couple of things that that's definitely um, 
something that school counselors across the country are continuing to kind of hold up their hands and say, wait a minute, this is not an appropriate duty for school counselors. It's really more clerical um, to be putting kids into, you know, into the testing systems and monitoring um, students as they test and and then catching all the kids as they make them up. Um, And that traditionally has been a role for the school counselors. So um, it's taken a lot of work, um, particularly in our school district, um, to kind of redefine how the school counselor's time should be used. So all of our elementary counselors do not um, work within the role of testing coordinator. Woohoo! Yeah, so there's, there's a great. lot of um, Like many of the other school districts across the country, we're still working to pull that off of the plate of our middle school and high school counselors. Um, and some may argue, like, school counselors are not in a classroom. They have the time to do it. But we also have to remember that school counselors are responsible for um, responding to students who are in crisis and being there for them when they need them, especially our students um, who um, maybe are reporting child abuse or, or are considering suicide. That's not something that we can say, you need to wait till the end of the month when I'm done being a testing coordinator. Those are, you know concerns we need to respond to immediately. So we're, we're trying to work within our school district and within our resources to say, how can we um, split up this job and, and make sure that the testing gets done required. Sorry. <laughs> dogs in sure the background. <laughs> Hold I, on. <laughs> I hear your dog chiming in on that one. Yeah, they're, they're just as annoyed that uh, school counselor's time is wasted with testing as you are. <laughs> I like your dogs already. Um, So um, it's something we're working on, but really uh, some of our schools are, we only have enough staff to do so many jobs. So at the end of the day, our school counselors are an integral key player in our schools and are going to be there to support our schools as they get through testing. So there's a, there's a role for counselors to play in in determining the testing and, and how do we get through that process, but I don't think it should fall squarely on school counselors. I want to get back to uh, the groups. You said you do small groups, and you're you're about to formulate those. The kids are just now getting back to school. What are some of the the topics that you cover? And, and I mean, if there are topics, I don't know if they're just general. You know, get together and address whatever pops up at the time. But tell me a little bit about how those work and and the the predictability. Like, are they regularly scheduled or are they as needed? Or you know, what goes on there? Because I I didn't know that that kind of thing was going on either. Because that didn't happen in my in my years, uh, and we won't talk about how many years ago that was, but um, I don't I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So I guess I can again I can speak for myself. I think a lot of the, at least the elementary counselors I think across our district maybe have some some similar groups. Um, but yeah, we usually kind of assess the needs at the time. So I'm trying to think in the past um, what kind of groups I've done. I mean, it's been all across the board from. Um, you know, friendship groups, maybe for, you know, the, my fourth and fifth grade girls who are struggling, you know, with their friends and frenemies, uh, maybe that they need a little bit more, more support on how to be a good friend or how to look for, uh, you know, a good qualities and other friends uh, and keep friends. Um, and, and But then we've also done things, like I said, we have a large military population in our area. So I've done some groups, small groups on uh, children with deployed parents. We also have uh, quite a few students that might have incarcerated parents. So having like a, a student group for uh, for that and the struggles that they might be facing. I've done groups for uh, parents who are going through a divorce and the kids might be struggling. 
Um, so it, yeah, it's just kind of, it depends what pops up in, in the moment. If we have a couple, you know, a couple students, um, and then one of my favorite ones, which, you know, like I said, since I was split the last couple of years and I was putting out a lot of fires and crisis stuff, I, I didn't get a chance to do it so much, but one of my favorite groups, we just call it lunch bunch. And it might be a, a group of kids that are maybe just struggling in school and need a little extra support. And then we come in and they bring their lunch and we get to have a little mini group and have lunchtime and, and I love that one. And we, my favorite thing, and they think it's, it's fun too. I call it the A's and B's, you know, what was your A for the week and your B for the week? You're awesome. And you're bummer. Huh, and then yeah. they, so it's a simple group. It's just, well, this was really awesome this week. And this was really a bummer. And then the kids themselves can kind of chime in, you know, give them some support. And then I'm more just, you know, facilitating, instructing and, and kind of helping guide that conversation and making sure it's appropriate, obviously. Um, but that's more like just a fun group for some peer things. So we do a lot of different kinds of groups. I'm trying to think I've done more than that too, but, but anger those are management, some, yes. um, some self-regulation sorts of things, social skills. Um, some of our students just need some help, like recognizing a, a social cue in somebody else that when somebody, you know, offers you something, you should say thank you. And, and this is why, because yeah. it might make the other person feel this way. Um, so we can have groups even just on those sorts of things. Um, in the middle school, um, the, the groups tend to focus more on peer relations. You might have like a girls group or a guys group um, and sometimes um, some study skills groups and organizational sorts of things to help them be successful in the in their academics. Um, and then those things also can carry over into high school. And then in high school, you can even start to see some groups um, in advising for, um, you know, college and careers. So if you have um, a group of students um, that are all going towards the same university or all interested in um, STEM careers or something like that, you could pull them together to advise them in their course selection and, and um, things like that. So That's awesome. creative to make the best use of your time. Yeah, you guys are really plugging a lot of uh, gaps there is what it sounds like. You're, um, it sounds like any sort of deficiency that uh, a group of kids may be experiencing, you're there to, to fill that, that hole, so to speak. And um, I really, that's, that sounds awesome. It sounds, it sounds really, um, diverse in the fact that it'll keep you on your toes too, and you won't ever really get bored. So that's, mm -hmm. that's cool mm -hmm. for, for school Just, counselors. We want to be there, um, for all students and just looking at like, what is getting in the way of you being successful at school? And sometimes those are academic things like just knowing to having a folder to put your homework in and, and having kind of a, a system to go home, do your homework and bring it back. But it could also be some personal social um, things that are getting in the way of you being successful. And, and we try to understand what those barriers are and, and come up with some solutions to help them be successful and, and to um, continue on in their journey through the K-12 system. I wanted to ask about uh, something that's becoming more prevalent it's in i don't want to say sweeping the nation because we're not there yet but it's it's getting to that point and that's um something called either positive behavior intervention support or uh, pbis or multi-tiered systems of support mtss and they're, they're not the same but they're kind of in the same camp if you will and and what it is is it for, for the, the listening audience is you, you structure or uh, stratify students into tiers, essentially, and um, tier one would be all students. Tier two would be all students plus students who meet uh, different criteria, and then tier three would be the, the students who, who um, 
need the most. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm using very vague terms here because I don't want to categorize it in, a, in one way or another. But an example might be tier one students is everybody in the school and they all get, we'll, we'll use mental health, for example, because that's my, my domain. Uh, they may all get uh, emotional training, emo, you know, emotional regulation training. And then tier two might be students who are really struggling with uh, self-confidence. That, that might fall into a mental health camp. So tier two, there may be a group for, for students who need confidence um, you know, and self-esteem. And then tier three would be the students who are so low on their self-confidence that they're, they're actually depressed. And then, and then they might be referred out to uh, community-based resources like, like Zephyr Wellness, for example, an agency. So the, the tier three students get the emotional training. They also get the groups, but then they also get something extra. Do you guys have a similar system for identifying those kids in your schools, or do you just um, kind of do a, a kind of a smell test survey of the of the demographics and be like, oh, yeah, it seems like we've got this trend emerging of of uh, teen girls getting picked on for their hair color. So let's you know let's let's do a group on that. Or do you have like like a a, a tool for screening kids into certain areas? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, in Rapid City Area Schools, we do have um, MTSS or multi-tiered systems of support. And that's kind of an umbrella term where we have all sorts of tiered models fitting under that. So as you mentioned, um, PBIS or positive behavior intervention systems. There's also um, RTI, which is, which is response to intervention. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of an ac- academic realm one where you have your classroom instruction and then you have um, maybe additional supports um, for the next 15% of kids who need um, a little boost. And then maybe um, 5% of your kids are maybe referred in for some special education or some specialized um, instruction. Um, similarly in counseling, we're trying to move towards a tiered model as well. So kind of, as I mentioned earlier, um, all classes, um, all students getting your classroom instruction, and that should meet the needs of about 80% of your students. And then, um, doing groups for about 15% and then maybe five for your most intensive services. Um, one thing that we know here in Rapid City is that we don't have a, um, you know, a real data-driven metric for moving kids into those tiers. But what's really exciting is we had over half of our counselors this summer engage in a book study. There's a really great book called The Use of Data in School Counseling. It's written by Dr. Trish Hatch. She's out of California. She's pretty awesome. Um, But she talks about all the different ways that we can use data to really drive the work that we're doing as school counselors. So something that we're hoping to implement over the next couple of years is really using data and some data queries. And what I mean by data queries is like maybe every um, month or every quarter or every week, depending on what you're looking for, you run some sort of report and you use the data from that report to drive who is going into your intervention group. So for example, maybe every month we're looking at absenteeism, which kids are absent and the, the students that meet a certain benchmark are going to be pulled into a group with the counselor and we're going to figure out why they're missing school and come up with solutions to solve that. So really using the data to drive which kids we're intervening with. That's exciting. It we're is exciting. But that, we're working and it's going to be pretty cool. I we think it, it's, uh, yeah, I guess, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, yeah, we're definitely trying to striving to be more data driven um, than we have in the past. You know, like we said, that that changing role that we've seen in the school counseling realm um, and, and how before 
you know, maybe many, many years ago, it was just the, well, who, who needs help? What should I do? Twiddling my thumbs, waiting for people to come in. Um, and then now definitely changing and looking at the data for your attendance or for your behavioral referrals and trying to gather, you know, hard information so that we can find more effective ways to use our time since we are kind of being stretched in a lot of different ways. And I did want to add too, like Canyon Lake, um, and I really think all schools, at least in Rapid City, are using PBIS as well. And it's a little new to me. I just joined our team this year um, now that I'm full-time and, and can kind of dive into some more school groups. Um, but I just joined our, our PBIS team. We haven't met yet this year, but um, our school is, is very committed to looking at what are ways that we can support students like we said, at that tier one level. Um, and one thing that we've done this year that I thought was really cool is um, every single classroom that we have has a cool down corner right now. So we got these big plush chairs. So each corner has a chair and then, you know, it has a clipboard with some questions on it. So the if the kid needs to cool down, they have some questions to reflect on, but they have a space where there's no questions asked. They can just go and calm down. And then using, you know, that positive uh, that positive behavior support and, and praising them for, you know, I'm glad you were able to go calm down and use that corner, you know, rather than responding or was it in a negative sort of way, like as a consequence, we really want to um, yeah, go, go sit in that chair. Yeah. We want to praise students for doing the right thing and using the strategies and resources that are available as opposed to um, speaking down to students for having a, a you know, for needing those resources. So it's really shifting the way that we talk to students. I can feel the cynic in me rising up, uh, probably as a, pro a byproduct of the generation in which I was raised, uh, saying, well, that's just going soft on the kids. Can't we just force them to pay attention and don't worry about their feelings? And I, and obviously you guys know that I don't believe this, but um, <laughs> there, are, there's still a, a contingent of people out there who will say something like, why do we need cool down corners? We're just creating more snowflakes. This is the the participation trophy generation where everybody's entitled to, you know, just take a time out from education. And then what happens if the process gets abused? And then what happens if the kids start teasing each other for taking too many timeouts and your, you know, cool down periods? So how do you how do you confront those types of uh, combative contrarian naysayers? You know, I think things have changed so much. Um you know, over time as, as things do and change happens. Um, but I think we're, we're seeing, and, and we're actually doing a, a school-wide book study this year and about trauma and how trauma has been impacting our students more. Uh, you know, we come from a, a very, I think, uh, hard knocks, red state uh, ourselves, very kind of old fashioned in, in the thinking as well. So we, we do hear this a lot. Um, but I think it's just important to address that, that since things have changed, I mean, there's so many more students that are, are going through family separations than ever before and just and bringing that trauma back in with them to school. So, you know, why not have that, you know, and I know, again, safe place. I know that's kind of a trigger yeah. for some people. <laughs> But I have this safe place um, for kids to learn to calm down so that, like you said, you're not a volcano and just waiting to, waiting to explode all over everybody else. I think some of the best ways to combat that thinking is to talk about some of the science behind it. And um, I referenced it earlier, and maybe you've kind of mentioned it on this podcast, but talking about the ACEs study, which is Adverse Childhood Experiences. And so um, there's been some research about how um, – 
the experiences um, you have as a child, and there's um, there's like a little checklist. There's ten of them on there, and some of the things are like um, uh, physical abuse or um, neglect, but it's also things like my I have had a parent who um, abused substances, or I had a, my parents divorced, and and so it's kind of a checklist. And and the more things you check off on that list, um, the more likely you're to have like adverse um, health effects as an adult. And it was really remarkable, I think, when they did the study that it it spans uh, socioeconomic status and and it spans um, different races. Um, that many of our young people are coming to school carrying the baggage of adverse childhood experiences. Um, And so we know that when students have had these sorts of things, it affects the way that their brains kind of develop. And and as you were kind of speaking about, you know, your your thinking brain, your logic brain, or your prefrontal cortex and your limbic um, brain, I think when students are maybe misbehaving or needing to calm down, um, that calms down that limbic side of their brain and allows them to get back into the learning side of their brain. But if we were to confront students with a more kind of um, confrontational or a hard-nosed approach that, no, you need to sit down, it, it actually um, just flares up more of the dysregulation and and it takes more work on their part and more frustration on both the part of the student and the educator to get them back into a learning mode so um our our research is heavily showing that that providing um, calming spaces or strategies to regulate students is really the way to go if we're going to be successful in the academic realm absolutely i perfectly stated um if if anybody's ever been in a real knockdown drag out argument uh, you'll know that reason does not typically work. Uh, <laughs> you can't reason your way through an argument, and that's because the wrong part of the brain is is lit up. So you, if you're in an emotional state and your limbic system is flaring, uh, using reason that would normally resonate with the prefrontal cortex will not penetrate simply because the wrong part of the brain is activated. So by validating and calming the limbic system through things like um, taking a cool-down period or just simply saying, hey, you look... You look really angry right now you know uh, just hearing the words that somebody matches your emotion can can have a calming effect and then you can return to that learning stage and the learning learning takes place in the prefrontal cortex in the in the in the frontal part of the brain and and you're not going to get through math or social studies which requires frontal lobe capacity if you're if you're constantly in limbic mode Um, and that's why it's important to have um, safe learning environments like you know that are, that are free of bullying because bullying flares the limbic if I'm constantly in a fight or flight mode and fear is flooding my brain I'm not going to be able to absorb the the academics that are being introduced to me so it's this isn't some soft you know hyper liberalized agenda that's you know just trying to create a bunch of marshmallows in society there's there's actual science behind it you can hear you laughing but um, but there's there's real science behind it, it says if you want kids to learn they have to be calm they have to be in in a reason based mindset. You can't have a bunch of um, you know danger in the environment or threats. And when kids come from homes that are dysregulated or that are uh, you know have have constant chaos, they bring that into the classroom. And and especially if the classroom is not safe, or you have an antagonistic teacher, or um, you've got you, kids aren't kids needs aren't being met and they're not being validated, then they're not learning. And and why would society care about this? Well. 
kids who don't learn end up not producing. And, and then it's a drain on the economy and it's a drain on your taxpayer dollars and all sorts of things. So, um, we really, we really, this, this matters and we really want to catch it early in the, in the K-12 system and not on the back end when people are in prison because they, they couldn't learn how to self-regulate and ended up, you know, punching somebody's nose out at the bar or, uh, breaking into a bank to, to rob it in order to feed their family, you know? So, um, I love the, I love the way that you, you explained that. That was very, very good. And, and I, I appreciate it. Um, we are, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Um, just that, um, you'll start to see, um, more schools across the nation kind of, um, catching on to this idea of trauma informed schools. And, um, and our school district is also working towards becoming a trauma-informed school district. And Katie kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but um, lots of praise to our upper administration here in Rapid City Area Schools, but they recognize the trauma that many of our students do bring um, to school every day. And we're actually engaging on a district-wide book study of this book. It's called Help for Billy, um, but it talks about uh, exactly what we've just kind of went over, how the brain responds to trauma and why we need to have calming strategies in classrooms and actually provides educators with strategies they can use in their own classrooms. So we're really excited to see, um, this is just year one where we're just talking about trauma and understanding that it's here, but then also how do we respond to trauma in the next couple of years. But um, it's going to be really great that it's not just on the shoulders of counselors and social workers and and people in support positions, but really um, something that our whole school district is saying we need to work together to help support all of our students. So we're really excited about it. And, it, and it's on coaches too. Just a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, we had um, John Malcolm from Safe Embrace, which is a local uh, domestic violence advocacy program and, and shelter, uh, talking about a program that he's implementing uh, here in the, the local area called Coaching Boys into Men, CBIM. And then there's another one for girls, athletes as uh, leaders, I think is what it's called. Um, and, um, it, it comes from Futures Without Violence is the national uh, organization that's pushing it. But it's it's trauma-informed coaching is basically what it is. And you don't have to be a victim of severe trauma. You don't have to have been, you know, uh, severely neglected by your parents to experience trauma. All trauma is is an exposure to too high of a level of emotion at too early of an age. And that can be anything, you know, I mean, it could be my, my three-year-old watching a dog get hit by a car that's that's too early for that brain and what we're seeing across the nation now and i don't i didn't want to get into social media because that's a completely different wormhole uh that would occupy an entirely different podcast but what we're seeing is across the nation now children whose brains literally are not developed to the point to receive the images that they're seeing on social media are being flooded at too early of an age and that's resulting in a stunted growth of sorts uh, psychologically emotionally um, and and socially so that they can't focus anymore in school so so it's really important that we have this this trauma conversation not just because of the the big bad things that we all think of like you know um, house fire uh, or you know car accident or uh, terrorist attack but it's it's the low-level constant bombardment of images that are far too mature for young developing minds and it's it's inhibiting their ability to to be educated which then of course as as i just alluded earlier it inhibits their ability to be productive later on down the road 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I, we've had discussions about how trauma really is an umbrella term. And there's so many things that can fit under that umbrella. It's, um, yeah, like you said, it's not just those, it's not a handful that you can count on, you know, each of your fingers. Um, it's, it's really encompassing a lot of things, which is why we're trying to I think shift towards that trauma and focus trauma focus now in our school district. I think in like Dana had mentioned, many school districts, um, just because I think once we start addressing those those traumas, uh, hopefully we can create you know better learning environments for our students. Absolutely, absolutely, and then everybody benefits. You know, so um, I, there was uh, there was one last thing I wanted to to address, and it was very briefly because uh, again I didn't want to go into the wormhole. But are you are you folks seeing this uh, this prevalence of uh, really super toxic, uh, insidious social media slash um, app, uh, phone apps that are connecting kids with anonymous post uh, ability to, you know, basically gossip about each other without taking any accountability. Are you seeing this in your school district? Yes, I, I would say so. Yeah. And like you had mentioned, it's uh, this is a wormhole that we could go down and probably talk about for another hour but social media um the online uh sites i know i've had students at at both levels elementary and high school i i I i've actually never been you know at a a middle school outside of my counseling practicum a long time ago um but we're seeing that a a lot at schools now okay or what did the the kids call i think the the other day i heard ghost accounts Mm -hmm. right Um, yeah start anonymously posting on things and um, yeah, even at the elementary level, we're seeing it. Yeah, and I think um, this presents a real um, tough obstacle for us to overcome because I think as adults, when we think about um, social media, we're thinking about like Facebook and Twitter and maybe Snapchat. And, and those are the things that teenagers are not even using anymore. They, yeah. they Like the technology mm-hmm. coming fast and they're in their own circles of influence that we can't even penetrate sometimes so there's like this whole subset of conversation that's happening among teenagers in particular that it seems like we're just it's not necessarily that we're oblivious we get we know what's we happening can't keep up tidbits of it but we just can't penetrate and like even know what's happening in that realm and it's kind of scary well and it keeps changing we, we just can't keep up and i mean right. Buckle in because in a couple of weeks I plan to do a, a podcast with a school counselor here who uh, he's he's Zephyr Wellness as IT guy but he used to be a, a clinical professional counselor intern also uh, named Jeremy Ellsmore he and I just did a presentation at one of the local middle schools on uh, that that precise topic to parents um, and it was for parents only uh, because we were basically displaying all the the secrets that that the kids. Uh, may or may not know, and we didn't want kids in there learning <laughs> new bad habits, but we wanted to arm the parents so that they could, you know, have a, a vibrant, robust conversation among each other and then uh, among school professionals and with their children about safe uh, networking, basically safe online activity. So we're going to, I, it was so valuable that a couple other schools have, have actually asked us to present. So we're going to do it on noggin notes uh to to bring it to the the broader populace because uh, i mean unfortunately we're not going to go into specifics obviously on which apps you can download because i know kids listen to this but um but we're definitely going to give an overview on how dangerous it is uh and how you can i mean you can literally find somebody standing at your door because you thought you were talking to another 14 year old and it turns out it was a 54 year old and um it's it's very very spooky 
Yeah, and that's and, and we do some lessons about the the cyber safety. Again, said you know I'm, I'm getting old. I can't keep up with mm-hmm. the technology anymore. But I found, and maybe it's kind of funny. I won't name my sources, but I have a couple when I was in the high school and the elementary kids that would, you know, would just tell me all about it and, and would start divulging kind of. You know, well, this is what kids are doing now, and and finding some of those. I learn so much from kids every day. Oh yeah, finding and kind of partnering with those kids, not so that you know, tell them not that you know, not so they'll get in trouble, but just yeah, what's what's new? So what are the the new cool things? Man, I sound so old now. And good for you for for <laughs> having like that that rapport. I when I yeah, working at an elementary school sure makes you feel old sometimes. Yeah. Well, and I like where you're going to, um, because I don't think we're ever going to be able to play catch up on the social media game with young people, but I think where where we can maybe um make some gains and really help students is on the educational front and really um just as Katie was talking about and you're Katie and you're talking about here too is informing students and giving them to the tools to make smart decisions when they are out there on their own in the, in the world yeah. of social media. So again, yeah, giving them the right tools. Yeah. I've always found that, um, Liberty tends to produce better results than constriction or, um, or, you know, over, overblown, uh, you know, draconian, uh, oppression. So, you know, kids will come in and, you know, for, for treatment or whatever, and their parents will be complaining about their behaviors. And I'll just say, you realize you can't stop this. And and they look at me like I have a hole in my head and they're like, but we must make him stop it. And I'm like, yeah, but maybe you should just invite him instead of trying to make him. And, and oftentimes when you, when you acknowledge that a child of really of any age, I mean, north of say 10 years old, uh, they're, they're going to they're going to do whatever they want anyway. So you might as well just lay it out there and say, Hey, look, here's what I advise. Here's the experience I have. Um, you're free to make your own choice because you're free to make your own choice anyway. Uh, you can't duct tape kids to the, you know, to the ceiling and, and, you know, refuse to let them go. They, they call the police on that. So, <laughs> you know, we, we, we physically can't restrain them. So, um, what, what I found works best is just empowerment, you know, education and, and then Liberty and then trusting, them to make the decision with the information they have at hand. And oftentimes, I mean, almost all the time they they'll fail. I mean, they'll fall, but um, they'll make the right decision. And then when they fail and fall, we want to be there to pick them back up. And that's what that's what educators do. And I love that. I, I can't say this enough. I love that you describe yourselves as educators um, first. I, I I just love that. But educators, counselors, therapists, teachers, parents, coaches, clergy. I mean, that's our job is to to help people of all stripes, not just children, but to fail forward. Um, not to prevent them from ever encountering risk or pain. You know, we want to we want to guide them, and um, and and I think I think that's a great great way of uh, summarizing. So, um, I really appreciate your time. We we blew through an hour here, which is uh, I can't believe it yeah. it was that long. Uh, felt <laughs> the like the only thing they had too for the people listening is uh, to know that school counselors are out there. You know, whether you're a parent listening or another teacher um, and then just talk to the school counselor and see, you know, what kind of, what kind of resources are out there for, for kiddos, you know, whether it's academic, social, personal, the whole gamut of things, school counselors can, can be there to, to help and, and support kids and families. Um, so yeah, if you're, if you're confused or just looking for resources at school, I would just say hit up the school counselors cause they're amazing resources. Absolutely. Yeah, they are. You guys are, you're well plugged in and well connected to, to lots of things. And yeah, I think t- traditionally we think social workers have all the resources. <laughs> uh, school counselors do too. 
Yeah, yep, and we can, yeah, we direct people in different directions. So if we can't help, which sometimes we can't, but if, if we can't help with something, we will make sure to find the, the right person that can in the school or in the community. Thank you for the conversation. Um, for those of you who are interested in being guidance counselors, you're, uh, you can't do that anymore. No, I, you can't do that anymore. You have to be a professional school counselor. Uh, <laughs> just had to get one more little zing in there. But um, it's a great profession. Uh, if you're listening and you, and you want to you know, change careers, uh, what are some websites that somebody might, might go to to become a school counselor? How do you, how do you, how do you dig into this without calling you two directly in, in uh, South Dakota? Well, a great, a great place for resources about school counseling is our National Association webpage. It's uh, the American School Counselor Association, and that's at schoolcounselor.org. Um, but that could give you some um, great resources just on what school counselors do and, and the profession. And then, um, and then it would just be a matter of reaching out to, you know, universities that you're interested in. And you may already have the qualifications to do it, but generally you have to complete um, a master's degree that specializes in school counseling in order to be um, employed as a school counselor. But you may be able to piggyback off of the degree that you already have. Um, but I think a good place to start would just be with uh, what we call it ASCA, but American School Counselor Association, and just kind of looking at um, what do school counselors do and what does the program look like um, and and starting there. Yeah. And as a school counselor, um, I've been doing it for five, five years now, um, but I was in, in different realms as well. I just can't emphasize, I'm not saying this to suck up since my, my boss is here, but I love my job. Like, it's amazing. It's it's, it can be frustrating and stressful, but it is amazing. Like, I, I really do look forward to going to work in the morning. So I only wish more people felt that way about their jobs, and I'm really grateful that I get to say that. Dana, do you have any money in the budget for a raise for Katie? <laughs> I'll check the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thank you both for your time. Uh, you've been very gracious. I know you have uh, you know a district full of kids to attend to there Dana and Katie you have a school full of kids to attend to so taking an hour out to do this in the middle of the day is is really precious and I, I appreciate it and I, and I hope our audience appreciates it uh, if you want to follow up with us and ask questions uh, info at zephyrwellness.org or info at nogginnotes.com are ways that you can contact me and then I'll circle back and contact the gals uh, and follow up with uh, with answers and uh we invite, you know, listener mail, obviously, and uh, that's that's actually how we found these two. Uh, they reached out and said, we'd love to be on your podcast. And I said, that's a fantastic oh, I idea. I said, hey, <laughs> how about school and mental health? And, and then I got invited on. Yeah, yeah. That... So but I'm, I'm super appreciative that you did. I wasn't expecting to do this, so that was kind of a surprise. And then I reached out to Dana and said, hey, can you do this with me? But I'm, I'm so glad you, you did. And I didn't know that being on a podcast was on my bucket list, but now I can cross that off. <laughs> it appeared and disappeared the same day. <laughs> it was a great opportunity. And yeah, it wasn't, you know, like I said, taking time out of the day is always hard sometimes, but I think this topic is important and we want to know, or we want people to know what school counselors do. So we really appreciate getting to, to put it out there for people. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, uh, again, you know, I appreciate it and, uh, wish you both an excellent week. We're recording this on Friday, so I'll wish you an excellent weekend. And so if somebody's hearing this on a Monday, it won't make any sense, but <laughs> there's the context. <laughs> So thanks to uh, Katie Baskerville and Dana Livermont for joining us on the Naga Notes podcast. We will see you back in a week. Bye-bye.